0: Uh, what's the result in the sense of what are me aiming at? You record okay. it. Is it live? No, you, Sensor. No. I'm for no. Sensor. It's, please, it's not a live please. stream.
1: So it's pre recorded. I will edit this ap- episode. And Sarah's just joined us. Hey, Sarah. Hi. How are you?
0: You hear I'm me? Good. It's okay. Yes. Yeah. Just I tell me, please don't be disappointed because for over a year I haven't been in a movie theater and so on and uh, whatever. But we will we see do. <laughs> it's good that it's good uh, that it's pre-recorded so that you can correct all the possible whatever, no? Yeah,
1: absolutely.
2: We, you're going to be wonderful. They, sorry? You're going to be wonderful. We know you are. <laughs>
0: uh, uh, no, don't do this. This is, this is what I like when people say to me, because this is, to me... A wonderful pressure, you know, you say you will be God. wonderful, it really means take care, you should really be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> terror, no, I know I can trust you, you will be and all the yes. terror. Okay, not a problem. You're yes.
1: in good hands, you're in good hands.
0: You know that in United States once, in mm. these politically correct crazy times, it's considered very risky to use the expression you are in good hands
2: <laughs> because
0: it's taken literally and then you know like no we are in crazy times okay sorry so just tell me if i get lost i like to have this awareness that you will uh, cut out possible stupidities do some elementary sentences
1: slavoj i'm a very good stalinist editor don't worry <laughs>
0: Absolutely. I'm an authoritarian that's editor. What we, that's what we need today because if you don't have a good Stalinist editorship then you end up with Donald Trump or Boris Johnson <laughs> in power, you know. you know, I mean, But you know I use them these wonderful examples of meaningless censorship. A friend of mine, I'm sorry if you know this story, a British professor who was uh-huh. teaching in China Yeah. Uh, had kind of a flirting of love affair with a lady in England. And uh, nothing obscene. They were talking on the phone and he, because they were both highly educated and so on, he used the term uh, declaring uh, his love for her like I protest my love. Because in Shakespeare, you you know, protest Mm. means also, can mean in Shakespeare's time, at least I Defiantly assert my love. No, the yes. was immediately cut short because he then he forgot that it was the anniversary of the Tiananmen. Okay. All phone conversations were uh, monitored, and if you used any word that their algorithm identified, like protest you were cut short immediately oh, wow. and broken <laughs> and the guy told me it was so funny like you know if in a flirting club conversations if he were to tell her like uh, i want to screw your brain out something really vulgar everything would have been okay if he <laughs> here you know ha-ha, no no way you know amazing oh that's, amazing. Oh, that's you so know funny what I also like Mm-hmm. And stupid computers do this. The, uh, I have such fond memories of how 30 years ago, when there was freedom, uh, TV uh, on TV we had a lot of movies. Free. Uh, I mean, like uh, it was still. Uh, uh, it was still. Um, illegal pirate versions, but we had many TV staff who just did it. And they were too lazy to do the proper job. They hired bad students to translate, to subtitle. Yeah, yeah. And my best example is, you know that Tom Clancy thriller, thriller with Harrison Ford? It's not a great thing, blah, blah, blah. They were a uh, clear and present danger. The yeah, CIA yeah. bombs a uh, village in Colombia. I don't know, but they kill many Innocent people. And Harrison Ford goes to the president and protests, like, You promised me that you will kill just uh, the guilty. The, the, uh, uh, and uh, so he says, You promised me it will be a surgeon's strike. Oh. <laughs> and the idiot you can imagine translated it literally. Said it was a very strange thing, Harrison, for going to the president and say, "You promised me surgeons will be on strike." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was quite a nice. Okay, movie. okay.
1: I'm I'm going to introduce you formally in case for for those listeners who have been living under a rock. Uh, we are very delighted to have the philosopher. Slavoj Žižek joining us today. Slavoj works in the subjects uh, including psychoanalysis, political theory, cultural studies, Marxism. He is the author of the two recent books on the COVID pandemic, as well as some of my all-time favorites, The Sublime Object of Ideology, The Parallax View and Enjoy Your Symptom. He's also an internet meme sensation and the writer and star of the documentaries in the Pervert's Guide series about cinema and ideology. Welcome Slavoj. <laughs> what a great icebreaker.
0: <laughs> My uh, I am honored to be here great and you. I uh, very much that the topic will be a little bit more into pop culture today that it will not be this eternal boring stuff. What do you think about our tragic situation pandemic, yeah, yeah. global warming and what should you do because the answer I am tempted to give to this faithful question is something like, follow my most optimist movie, Von Trier Melancholia, a big movie Uh. with a happy ending, you know. That's all all I can say, you know.
1: Oh, we love Melancholia. Really?
0: really Because I really think that there is something strangely, not relaxing, it's a vulgar world, but pacifying in the movie and that... uh, this is uh, one of the best roles. He is very good by Kiefer Sutherland, no? Ah, ah, Yeah, because it's precisely the role where he is not this, what was that, 24 hours or what, macho, no? Oh,
1: yeah, a yeah. A guy
0: who boasts as a man, and then he kills himself, the first to go down. And I like this, did you notice this at the level of David Lynch, almost wonderful materialist details. By materialism, I mean what? What I like in David Lynch is how uh, one of his standard procedures is Have you have, um, you remember the beginning of Blue Velvet, I think, you have even um, a little bit ideal uh, lawn green in front of the house, but then just the camera goes too close to it. And all yeah. of a sudden you see this disgust of life. Worms, crawling, spiders, whatever. <laughs> you know? And you remember, towards the end of melancholia, when, the, uh, when the, uh, this melancholia planet, whatever, is approaching Earth, the same thing happens there on the Earth's surface, where they are, in the grass all the worms, insects, everything start, starts to come to come out. And also <laughs> this wonderful symbolic gesture, which I think is not to be taken literally. It's not a stupidity. You remember how Kirsten Dunst just built a kind of a, uh, not even a tent, just a kind of a marked space, like uh, four weeks or whatever, and just said, herein we are safe. Yeah. And it's a wonderful, pure, symbolic gesture because it, the point is not this stupid superstition. Here we will survive. But it's just, yes, everything will end. We have a space here at least to die in peace and so on, you know. It's, yeah. it's, it's I must say, uh, a movie that I really appreciate. I know you plan for us later to even talk about Von Trier. And uh, I, I am just very sad that from Trier now, after a couple of mistakes, which I don't even consider mistakes, no. that unfortunate, uh, was it the unfortunate remark about Hitler? Oh, yeah. at the Hitler. Cannes
1: Film Festival.
0: Yeah, but do you remember, no, you don't, uh, probably you haven't read it. I remember when I was young, I read uh, some private notebooks, diaries of, Wittgenstein. And yeah. in the spring of '45, he said exactly the same thing. He said, oh, poor chap Hitler. Now he must feel pretty alone in that bunker. But, <laughs> and, you know, here you have trans- what uh, psychoanalysis calls transference at its purest. Because... I mean, again, if an ordinary guy, okay, von Trier is not ordinary, but not expected to be a philosopher, says this, it's either a flat stupidity or you get into trouble. But if Wittgenstein said it, it's quoted as a wisdom, and then, you know, you should (laughs) look for a deeper meaning into it. People often tell me, but mostly you are just exploiting, using cinema to make some, not even uh, points of social analysis, ideology and so on, but even abstract theoretical points. And I openly admit it, let's be frank, about 40% of what I write about cinema is uh, just brutal exploitation. Good illustration of a theoretical point. And now I will be evil and make my usual confession, which I warn you, it's not a lie. Well, not half, but at least 40% of the films that I write about, I haven't seen them. I have this wonderful, not only reliance on theory, but you know what often happens to me? I read a review or somebody tells me about a film. This gives me an idea. And then I'm afraid to see the actual film because it may be more complex as it usually is and then ruin my idea, you know? So I say, no, 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 let's keep it. So that's it. Then another 40, 50% is simply movies like illustrations of ongoing uh, ideological trends. You know how can you... Uh, detect this exploitation because when I talk or write about a film just think what do I need and often it's just the bare storyline there is no formal analysis and so on only about 10% I would have said is real analysis real in the sense of the forum where I am I wouldn't say proud of myself, but I think rarely I do hit something and this is my obsession with cinema, is uh, to show by a detailed analysis of gestures, camera movements, and so on, how uh, you have the narrative, the story, but how the forum itself, how the story is filmed, gives a different, sometimes even the opposite message. For example, you asked me, uh, uh, that's why I also like von Trier. He's Breaking the Waves. He himself gave a wonderful reading. He said that the narrative line is so madly romantic and so on that if he were to shoot the movie, in the way that fits the way such a mega-sentimental romantic story is usually told, that in this case, it would have been ridiculously, self-destructively sentimental. That's why this is a genius of a stroke. Look at it and you will notice it's shot almost as an improvised amateur documentary shortcuts uh, 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 camera held shots which often shake yeah. and um, and very nicely said that he wrote somewhere in the early uh, interview said that the only way to make the movie palpable uh, uh, tolerable is precisely to shoot it in such a way that the very form of the movie, kind of uh, uh, undermines a little bit the brutal sentimentality of the totality of the story. You know why this is interesting for me? Because as some good analysts have shown in classical melodramas with all Hays Code prohibitions, Mm -hmm. it was usually the opposite procedure. You know that that because of censorship then uh, all the hints of even incest or, I don't know, homosexuality or too explicit de- uh, sex and so on, you couldn't mention it, but with details of either penetrative camera movement, especially passionate music, this person which was not directly representative, no? But speaking, just uh, allow me one remark. You know, it was my dream, my dream, how I, but not really a trigger warning, but no, nothing, okay. but kind of a crazy idea to let you know how my mind works. <laughs> you saw, it's solid. It's not a great work of art, but it's nicely done. Did you see that uh, Chernobyl BBC series? Yes. A year and a half ago. where well, yeah. noted, the good Soviet bureaucrat, the good guy who gets on is Sherbina, played by whom? By Stellan Skarsgård. Yeah. And the good, honest Ukrainian or what? Lady scientist who gives him the true data is, uh, how do you call it, the one who plays exactly in Breaking the Waves. Emily, no, not Emily Watson. Yeah, you. It is
1: Emily. Yeah, it's Emily Watson.
0: Emily Watson, yes. Okay. Now, you know what happens, the basic situation in breaking the waves. They are lovers, then the guy, Stellan Skarsgård, when he's still young, gets crippled, and they make this perverted deal that she, Emily, should have. Not orgies, but uh, intense sexual life. And then, because this is the only satisfaction for him, to tell him, to arouse him, uh, because he uh, he cannot move, to tell him the
1: experience. experience.
0: Now, that's my dream. Just to give you a hint, how my dirty, you can imagine this, how my dirty mind works. You know how (laughs) in uh, Chernobyl, yeah. It's also telling him all these stories, but oh, uh, uh, radiation is much worse, you remember these, that, those data. And at a certain point, it would have been a wonderful, ironic point, of course, self referential, where that guy, played by Stellan Skarsgård, referring to a previous, would have said, listen, I'm boring about these stories about radiation. Could we return a little bit to breaking the ways and telling some stories about sex life? And I try to imagine, you know, if this, that's what always fascinates me, if this were to be short a warning, not as a, 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 a comical joke, but in a totally serious way, with the same faithful voice that a Soviet bureaucrat, you know, asks you, Like, comrade, okay, good report, but give me another report about your sex life, (laughs) and so on. You know, so, uh, you know, there were a couple of idiots. They are proven idiots. Why? Because their stupidity was proven by the fact that they thought they had some sexual troubles. For me to be their analyst, you know, that I should... Can they go in analysis with me? My answer was, of course, instantly, like, if you can even imagine me as your analyst, then you are really crazy. (laughs) Psychiatrist, you know, and... and, uh, uh, This is the only sex advice that I gave, and it worked. The guy had this usual trouble, you know. Uh, uh, Not that he couldn't get erection, but more, uh, he was so oppressed and I have similar problems. No, I will not go on into my sexuality. but It is like, it's terribly difficult for me to relax and like, no, just do it. And I just told him, the worst thing for you to do is to fall into this immediate authenticity, pseudo Oriental stuff. Don't think about it. Just do it. Indeed, this is then pure superego situation. This is the most brutal superego order. Don't think, just do it. For sure, it will not work. So I gave him a wonderful advice, which he told me later it worked. Don't think about sex in terms of this lively, flirting exchange. Think of it as a bureaucratic duty. Sit down with your girlfriend and make a good, not five years, but five hours, maybe, bureaucratic Stalinist plan. And focus like first wikis, then I reach gently with my hand between your legs and then have a debate. The lady said, no, could you first unbutton my blouse? Then, you know, and then they finished out with a long list, you know, you put your finger here, then you don't go on, but there and so on. And they told me that after playing this game almost one hour, they said, it's so tiresome, let's just fuck. And they did. (laughs) I always think that bureaucracy helps at this level. If I uh, have problems with this big tendency today, yes means yes. In some countries, I'm not kidding, in New South Wales, I heard, although people don't really follow it, but they even have a state law there that every sexual intercourse has to be somehow before in a I call it bureaucratic way recorded. Even a written statement of both or a, a video clip, we both want to do it and so on. My problem is this one. that, uh, And here I rely on a, do you know her? I don't know her, although we work at the same place, uh, Bergbeck, I just now stumbled upon a book for her. Somebody from a different department than mine called Kathleen uh-huh. Angel. She wrote, oh, yeah.
2: She uh, wrote Daddy uh, Issues. Sex oh, will be yeah, better.
0: Yeah. Now, I don't like the title. I don't think it will ever be better. It will just be screwed up in a different, more pleasurable, hopefully way. But she has a wonderful point as a radical feminist claiming that uh, this rule functions as if there was not psychoanalysis ever, as if In sex, each partner clearly knows in advance with all the details, what do you want, and so on. But he says, no, often a nice flirting game is a game of, okay, everything is open. There are guys who precisely like, and I respect them, direct vulgarity, you know.
1: Mm -hmm. There
0: are, sorry, I'm not among them. Yeah, yeah, of course. There are, but mostly, especially for women, and not because they are less, precisely because they desire more intensely, women experience, I think, in a clear way this gap between what you officially want and what you really desire. And it goes in both ways. On the one hand, You may desire something, but not for some old-fashioned feminine shame, but you know, you maybe be the touch of masochism or even shame, which I like. You don't want to put it obviously. You give gentle hints, what do you want, and you want your partner to act on it. There are women, and men also, incidentally, who uh, don't want first to explicitly formulate it as a demand. Intense sex is, in this sense, a gradual self-discovery. Then, because, you know, another aspect of this gap is that in our dirtiest fantasies, that's why, personally, I don't like psychoanalysis because I have more and more this Stalinist idea. I believe in surface, in kind faces, laughter. If we look deep into ourselves, we discover shit nastiness, petty perversions. So that this is my old formula. Uh, 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 and yeah. I, my friend, psychiatrists, they all confirmed it to me. That, uh, vi- that uh, one of the most traumatic, it can be, violent experiences is when you secretly, intimately fantasize about something. You are even afraid to, how I put it, to admit to yourself openly, I want this. You just fantasize in these nasty moments when you get this in reality, imposed onto you from outside. My problem with yes means yes. Yes, we should use it, of course, but we should at the same time be aware, wouldn't you agree that the only form of sexual contact, contact where this yes is yes in advance you state what you want is the sadomasochist contract. There, yeah. it works. So what I'm saying is just that Sex is a shitty, unjust, complex thing. You cannot resolve it with simple rules if you obey the rules. On the other hand, it's not even, as already said at the beginning, that then don't use any rules. No. The point is to play intelligently with the rules, you know? Well, yeah,
2: absolutely. Well, yeah, I it's the...
0: and, I there is, and this is so difficult today. Why? Because, and you see this also in the movies, because uh, one of this is why I don't like this couple of new alt right, alternative right obscenity, and on the other hand, strict political correctness. Yeah. What makes me sad is that as Angela Nagle. I don't I love her. her. But in her kill the normies, she kill this,
1: honestly,
0: The paradox of our time, I remember, I'm old enough, unfortunately, when I was uh, young, uh, 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 you know, those in power, big rightist dignitaries, they spoke in a dignified way, formally, and we left this thought, the real thing is, you know, to use dirty words, fuck off, to show fingers, whatever. Like, you know, like that one. But today, it's almost the other way around. It's very sad. The old right appropriated these innuendos, jokes, but in a vulgar way, anti-feminist, and the left more and more reacted either with these strict rules or even worse with law and order. There are now, for example, I read and I confirmed with my friends, not where you are, but up north, those who want to abandon you, Scotland, you know. You know that they were considering there, Glasgow or Edinburgh, I don't know where, a law which would make a criminal case which can be prosecuted, even when you make tasteless remarks.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Um, A close group behind the family table and so on. I am not opposed to this because I think, no, this doesn't happen. I just think that in no way you will stop uh, brutality, speech violence and so on and so on because language is such a plastic thing, you know that. Always you can turn prohibition, even polite respect into an even more brutal violence. Oh my, God. my God, you got a long speech by Comrade yeah. Stalin. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, wait, we have <laughs> We, ha- Slavo, so we it- have some questions
0: I for you. I denounce you. I mean, <laughs> in fact, it immediately, you are not a good Stalinist. You are a bourgeois liberal.
2: But you yeah. have been wonderful, so we were right about something.
0: <laughs> Usually it's the opposite with me. In oh, the- really? that no, uh, <laughs> people ask me theoretical question, I escape into cinema. Now I like <laughs> this when we just just not yet cinema. <laughs> we are doing this general stuff. Please, cheat okay. I loved already your first question. If you follow the list, uh, oh, I will, I will. pleasures is this. Okay, I will not now be the ultimate terrorist who... <laughs> This is an elementary feature of Stalin's style. He always asks a question and then answers. What are, comrades, the tasks of our party in the next year? Comrades, the tasks of our party in the next year are... I don't want to play that. No, no.
2: well, the thing I... is that you, I want to change it slightly because, based on some things you've said before, but obviously, you know, we refer to the Perverts Guide all the time. You're writing and filming a sacred text to us. Sorry, We're... not a
0: joke. I didn't see the movie. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, really? I know. I know. I because believe you. I'm so ashamed of all the ticks of my and uh, hand gestures. I cannot stand myself on the or, or on the screen. It's not. Oh, a really? Sorry, but go on.
2: Well, it's there. We watch them a lot, but um, but we kind of were interested in your personal tastes. Whether you know you always need to watch films on an intellectual level, or if you have you know with the intention of writing about them, or if you have guilty pleasures, what films attract you? But now I'm sort of wondering if talking about films has become a greater pleasure than watching them, like reading book reviews and buying books rather than reading them.
0: Uh, here, you really a um, sensitive stuff because for a long time yes although I enjoyed a movie but uh, but I uh, I uh, couldn't accept it with my theoretical superego that I just enjoy it so I had to draw something out of the movie some theoretical point and so on it had to be some theoretical justification to make a point of social analysis, of stylistic analysis and so on and so on. I felt too guilty directly, directly enjoying it. And even now I am up to a point uh, uh, part part of, part of uh, that. Otherwise, do I have guilty pleasure? My God, my existence is a guilty pleasure. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm all of it. And you know who is my colleague in this? That's why I love him. He is now old and teal very sad. Fred Jameson.
1: Ah, oh, no, yeah, I don't yes.
0: know. He's the same. When we talk on phone, and you know, since he wrote all that bullshit about great works of art, Asian cinema, and so on, you know. I was afraid that he would be like that, you know. But then when I talk him, did teacher did you see any good movies? The last James Bond is excellent. Batman is not bad. <laughs> we have no problems uh, doing this, no. So uh, my personal, my uh, personal tastes. There are the big classics to be rediscovered, and I really enjoy them. Movies like. You must know it because now we are a little bit... By me, I'm a Stalinist. I mean my Slovene gang. Me, Vlad Dolar, Alenka Zupancic, maybe some others. Mm-hmm. The Hitchcock obsession, although we still like him, is over. And now we don't know where to move. One idea is we did one volume. It didn't sell well in English, Ernst Lubitsch. Oh, yeah. And we were shocked to see how many of the younger generation don't even know these absolute masterpieces, like, not skies but like, To Be or Not To Be, or uh, Trouble in Paradise, the earlier one, and so on. So we did quite nice things, you know, that uh, uh, Nicola, or Nicole Lubitsch, his daughter, mm-hmm. who is now in her 90s, but still, not senile, a fresh lady, she visited us a year and a half ago. We had nice conversations with her and so on. I mean, and uh, so it's Lubitsch definitely. Then I will tell you uh, uh, a surprise and uh, a problem I have. I have, I wonder if you have the same experience. Many old movies that I have again in mythic memory don't work any longer. For example, this is what some of the Westerns that I like. It was a legend when I was young with uh, Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, gunfight at OK Corral and some other Westerns. They were a mythic when I was young. Sorry, they are boring today. They don't work. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. But um, <laughs> a tragic example. Uh, I'm sorry to say this because we were so attached to them, Marx Brothers.
1: Ah, oh, yeah.
0: I I tried the biggest recently duck soup and sorry something too flat still good jokes here and there but but they don't work but what still works I was now, now this is, is one way to come close to to guilty pleasure it's uh, some of the westerns of the from that era of the beginning of the Decay. You know the West, Western as a formula was exhausted around 1950-51. You got already those reflexive Westerns. By reflexive, I mean they are already kind of a metafiction. They comment on the formula itself, like High Noon and Shane. They don't. But what works is, I don't know, my God, this is a different world for you. Some of those from mid-fifties. Delmer Dave's classics like 310 to Yuma, not the new version now, the old one or, or or The Hanging Tree and so on, beautiful romantic story and I also took this from my good friend the hardline Maoist Marxist Alain Badiou who loves westerns because he said this is courage, courage for the event and so on <laughs> that, uh, that still goes on, then now this is more a guilty pleasure, not so much in TV series as more in the novels themselves. I know that Agatha Christie is like one is embarrassed, embarrassed to mention her. You know, I admire her imagination of how she was able to, like almost in a kind of a system of structural permutations to enact all variations of a story. Who is the murderer? He had three, four wonderful extreme versions. The one is uh, who killed or the murder of Roger Aykroyd, you know, where the narrator himself who is, as a rule, representative of this stupid public common opinion charmed by the detective uh, he is the murderer. Then uh, you have of course murder in the Orient Express where, as you know, the entire group of the suspects is the murderer, which means that okay. the killed one must be the true criminal. Then it is almost my my favorite murder in the Muse M E W S, uh, where it's quite ingenious because the usual story is that you kill somebody and then try to cover your crime by making it look as a suicide. You know that Murder in the Muse has the the opposite ending. Poirot discovers that it was really a suicide. But somebody to put the blame on his enemy tried to make it like a murder, you know. So I must say I uh, I have a certain (laughs) elementary enjoyment. It's horrible. In her. Then, uh, okay, my two... Series that I—they are not new. Recently, okay. I discovered uh, that I didn't have time to watch them earlier. It was now during the pandemic, and if I may explain why, it's very strange. Did you see that uh, with Claire Danes' uh, spy for uh, Homeland?
1: Oh yeah.
0: I like it first because it begins as a it, the first. Half of the episode, still four, is the standard America fights the terrorist story. Then it gets much more complex. Not only this ambiguity, who is guilty, who not. Some right-wingers even attacked the last seasons as, oh, probably the scenario was written by ISIS or whatever. But do you remember it? The ending is how. He, Claire Danes, CIA agent, gets in a relationship with her KGB or FSB today, whatever, counterpart. Yeah. And the ending is that she escapes, joins him in Russia, pretends to change sites, but secretly, this is the very last scene, still sends messages to her CIA link. Now, usually people read this as a standard sacrifice. You sacrifice your personal happiness, you do everything, even with a lover that you don't like, just to help your country. But no, I had an impression and then I checked it up with a scenario writer, I found where he said, no, the point is that he really loves that guy. She has a fully satisfying relationship there. And then... They ask him, but why then is she betraying him and Russia? And he says the scenario, it has nothing to do with uh, patriotism and so on, that this is for her the space of freedom. It's an absolute love, but not to get too totally immersed of it. She needs an outlet, you know. So it's even in a way, when I wrote about it, I I've chosen that phrase from John Le Carre, a perfect spy, that the only true proof of love is treason. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, is this obsessive love? You must you must have some. In true love, it's not. Oh, I'm totally open to you. That's nightmare. That's not love. That's cannibalism. You know. <laughs> I like that ending very much, but it's again crucial to read it in an almost feminist way as a true happy ending for a woman and women are here better than men. For a man, he would have dilemmas. Oh, what do I really like her or particular? You know, but he simply accepts this duality as perfect love. And it's so wonderful in the final scene there at some dress concert in Moscow and she goes to the toilet where, of course... There is her contact agent, she puts something, uh, they exchange uh, some paper, blah, blah. And then she goes back to her guy and you can see they sincerely enjoy each other, it's true love and so on. More and more, I think, true love comes with this type of distance. Not because it's not so intense, it doesn't matter. Precisely because it is so intense that if you openly accept it in all intensity, you go crazy. Yeah. You know? So uh, this, the other one, please don't laugh at me. Uh, did you see this uh, strange co-production? I think it's uh, Norwegian, uh, Canadian or what? Vikings, the series.
1: No. no. It's a mega
0: hit. It tells oh. historically the story of those hundreds of years when the Viking miracle happens. Vikings invading England and other parts and so on. The one thing I love is that it's honest in the sense that all other Viking stories or movies to make to make the Vikings acceptable for us cover up the brutality or their of their daily life. Here they don't like the good guys with whom you're supposed to identify they rape women, torture children, burn people alive, and so on. It's just part of life. Okay, but that's not what I like. What I like is uh, an extraordinary relationship with the hero, Ragnar Lordbrok, who is a historical person, the weak Viking leader, and King Egbert, his, one of the English kings, his counterpart. And you should watch the series to see this. They, of course, betray each other. Uh, uh, one murders the other. His sons murders the first one. But in spite of this, when they meet, they develop a kind of a total respect and authentic friendship. It's clear to both of them that they are playing the game, that they are trying to betray. Yeah. But nonetheless, they enjoy each other's company so much so that uh, even the way they die, at the end, Ragnar Lodbrok, the Viking, surrenders himself to this king who, because of his past crimes, had to deliver him to another king to be killed, tortured to death. And then this uh, King Egbert, when Vikings invade, his capital, court is abandoned but he stays there knowing that he will be killed by the vikings in a strange kind of fidelity and i like this idea of some uh, deeper bond which is beyond what freud would have called pleasure and reality principle yes we still are people who want pleasures who betray each other we do machinations, manipulations. But there is not somewhere in deep, but even on the surface, there is a wonderful communication, which is in some sense existentially more important. This seems to me, especially for today, an important lesson. I will immediately go into what do I mean by this. Because uh, now I talk about my and East European political experience I think at the same level we Slovenes are much more barbarians than poles Poles Poland are now becoming barbarians. I will explain to you in what sense uh, you know what shocked me so much maybe you heard the name Adam Michnik the great Polish dissident blah 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 mm. I heard a rumor about him when I met him at some round table I asked him and he confirmed it you know that when they had those negotiations, when communists knew they were lost, and he negotiated on behalf of the Solidarnost with Jaruzelski, they become friends. And then afterwards, they were close personal friends. Their families meet at least once a week for dinner. They took holidays together and so on. They remained political opponents. But isn't there something so wonderfully civilized in this? And even, uh, uh, I learned that even the big guy of Valencia, you know that when Jaruzelski, old, later, was dying in hospital, Valencia visited him. Isn't this wonderful? We have political struggles, blah, 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 we hate each other, we lie, we betray, but the forum remains that of decency of decency, which is more just than pretending to cover up the real intelligence. You know, the message is, no, okay, we are part of a power game, we do all this, but we still can treat each other with some decency. Now I come to my point, in Slovenia, unfortunately, this was never the game. With this new right-wing populist that we have now, who is now even known around Europe as a nationalist monster, Yanis Jansha, for him to meet an opposition leader, or he's now in government, or from the other side, no, no way. He turns around, no communication. And unfortunately, the polls are becoming the same. This horror, one of the true brothers who survived, uh, Kaczynski, who is the true secret seat of power there, Kaczynski is a crazy guy. He's now in his 60s. He never had a partner, neither male, nor female. He lives alone, absolutely harsh, crazy. You cannot talk with him. And this is uh, very sad. In in England, you are a little bit better, probably, because I remember those debates, uh, pre-electoral, Corbyn and uh, uh, Boris Johnson, nonetheless, at least smiled at each other, but for example, in United States, Trump broke this, no?
1: <laughs>
0: Trump broke, and I think, as a leftist, I'm saying, more and more, in my old age, I believe in good manners. My motto is, today, the right-wingers are becoming vulgar, you know? Yeah. You, uh, and maybe it's time for us, the left, to say, sorry guys, We both got it wrong. You, the right-wingers, are vulgar postmodernists, relativists, historicists, no truth. We left should be guys of true moral majority, simple values. I think this was the secret. Then it went wrong for other reasons with Jeremiah Corbyn. He was just, just the impression, a simple, relatively, you never know, okay, but honest guy. And this is, that's why... I always, when they accuse me of being a postmodernist, use maybe you know the line in the United States. I said, No, I'm on your side. I'm a traditional moralist. But Trump is your ultimate obscene, subversive, (laughs) postmodern president. If there is a figure of simple moral majority, it's Bernie Sanders. He's just that. And it's wonderful to
1: he would have won in 2016 if the DNC had not betrayed him he would have won
0: I know people who told me I had some links in Democratic Party not top but you know why because in all of the United States there are Lacanians here and there but the only department but it's a small one uh, of cinema and cultural studies where Lacanians are in power There are a couple of Lacanians and the chief of department is Todd McGowan, a Lacanian, is in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, Yeah, Bernie Sanders territory. And I spoke with the guy, uh, Bernie was not there, who was his uh, ghostwriter and so on, and told me uh, Bernie knew so well what to do. Bernie's obsession was don't get caught in this game of get the middle, get this middle class obsession. no. Uh, Our only chance to win is to get those disappointed poor white girls who feel betrayed by the Democratic Party, which is now more and more the party of the financial and media elite, and go to those who would have otherwise voted for Trump. That's what exactly we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be ashamed of this. But sorry, we are again. No, doing
1: it's okay. I'm gonna. I'm. I. I th- this connects to my to my question. Now I have a question no, no, no. for you.
0: To say, okay, you must leave to my reputation, which is. Uh, I hope that this means that we are friends, which is uh, <laughs> uh, a kind of a vulgar. Anti-feminist obscenity. I would like to talk about politics and theory, but for your gentle feminine minds, this is probably too much. So <laughs> you know, like movies are easier for you. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> yeah. but oh my you god! Agree? I, I agree with you. Movies and so on.
2: Wow! Yeah. I didn't so, know. I didn't know we were such good friends.
0: The, <laughs> list, the place where our ideologies are formed, and we, the leftists, shouldn't. Be feel guilty and find no. I'm yeah. watching that movie just to study the enemy, shall we, die? No, fuck it. Enjoy the movie if you do. We shouldn't feel. Well, guilty. I have. I-
1: Slava, I have a question for you that, that actually builds on your statements just now. Um, yeah. wh- I just want to ask you, what are your thoughts on the dominance of so-called identity politics in relation to film discourse? Because when I say identity politics, I just mean an over-identification with immutable characteristics like race, gender, sexual orientation, yeah. you know, etc. Et it seems like th- the current... F- you know, the media establishment seems to demand like a moralizing role or function from cinema that incorporates this over-identification with characteristics. And I just wondered what you thought about this in relation to the future of cinema.
0: Uh, I am, of course, here predominantly uh, pessimist. Now, first, I will say something which I may be wrong. I've seen the movie only once, I should give the movie another chance. Which one? The one who got Oscar, Nomadland.
1: Oh, yeah. Nomadland,
0: yeah. yeah. Okay, it's good, blah, 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 all that stuff, but you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I really saw it very quickly, so I, I owe to the movie another chance, but it comes close for me to what some people, in a critical way, called. Classism as opposed to class struggle. Classism means uh, identity politics transferred to classes or other groups. Like in Germany, I was told there is now a whole movement, which is for me absolutely non-emancipatory. But the idea is this one. Let's make workers proud of what they are. Let's not leave them in the background. You are just those who failed. Let's celebrate their culture, their sense of community. Let's teach them, enlighten them. But I think this is just identity politics transferred to workers. And Mm. the basic message of this is not fight against the shit you are in, your predicament, but learn to enjoy it. Yeah. This is what, this is my problem with Gandhi in India. I was there caught in terrible trouble because I supported the other guy, Ambedkar, who was more of a Buddhist, and uh, he he was opposed to castes. while Gandhi's solution was a different one. He didn't want to abolish castes. But just to emphasize that all castes are equally children of God. Also the the, uh, untouchables have their own dignity and so on and so on. No, and uh, again, I see, you can correct me, maybe I'm wrong. I really should give the movie another chance. But uh, Nomadland, uh, for me, comes too close to this. But you see, even those, because these are not, how they put it, the usual nomads, which I know I'm not a total idiot, that in the United States you have, I think tens of thousands, even millions maybe, of people who, after they retire, yeah. Yeah. they simply choose to live in, how do you call that, caravan or whatever, the, the truck with that uh, behind and so thing. on, and they just wander around. No, the movie about those who cannot find a permanent work and uh, go around all the time. but uh, I detected in the movie a little bit of idealization. Like you see, it's not just misery. They also have their own honesty, their own dignity. And here, then, another panic reflex explodes in me: the anti-Frank Capra reflex. You know, the, you know the old Frank Capra comedies. It's this false celebration of poor people, like yeah. honest. Uh, basically even happy in full solidarity. They cheat. I mean, my God, you know, let's be serious. This is not anti-poor-people statement. This is to describe their true tragedy, to say that, you know, poverty doesn't necessarily make you good. It can also make you (laughs) a much more brutal egotist and so on. So this would be one example. Another example, about identity politics is that we have this weird, I cannot but call it, bureaucratic tendency, and I experienced it at different levels. For example, La La Land. Mm -hmm. I didn't too much love the movie, but one critique infuriates me. One big reproach in American media against La La Land was that it's homophobic. Why? Because it takes place in L.A., And we know that in LA there is larger than usual percentage of gays, but there is not one gay person in the movie. And it's so horrible. What does this mean? That when you shoot a movie, you should take, you know, one Latino American, one black, one gay, and so on. I, I find something terrifying in this. It's the same with books, readers, or colloquiums. Like, when I tried to organize at Birkbeck a colloquium on Hegel, but then because of COVID, it had to be canceled. It was, oh, why are there only white people? And okay, with women, they couldn't okay. have uh, caught me there because, ah, this is for me true feminism. Not <laughs> even if women are stupid, which they are not, we have to invite them. Of eight people participating, five were women. And I didn't think in a politically correct way. All the good books now on Hegel, practically all in the last years, 20 years, are written by women. Now we have the last two, Rocio Zambrano and uh, some others. Okay, not to get lost, but what I'm saying is that whenever I propose a reader, they don't even care about the quality of the text. The publisher says, okay, some Asian... A black guy, Latino guy, enough women, and some gay person also wouldn't do any damage. uh, I find this horrible, you know it won't sense. It's exactly the wrong way to correct what is unjust. If there are no good but there are, that's why I take this example. If there are no good women Hegelian philosophers, again, I took this example because there are, if this were to be the case, the answer should have been not. So to reestablish the balance, let's include them. This, just, this is a terrifyingly patronizing gesture. Exactly. It just breeds hatred and envy. A guy can really say, sorry, screw you, I have a... No, the question to ask is why are there no good women? While there are now today many women philosophers, and here we should be open to all answers. Is there still a kind of a cultural censorship that this type of pure theory, women are not by direct censorship but with some subtle procedures exploded, are women still underprivileged here, or... Also, it's not prohibited. Is there in the Hegelian approach itself something which excludes women, at least the way their identity is perceived now? Happily, we know now that this is not the answer. But you see what I mean? You should solve the problem and approach it directly. If you say, okay, let's include some women, you don't solve the problem. You just create envy, hatred, and it must be horrible. I know examples when women were included and then they suffered because they were told, you know, we, yeah, yeah, you were just included for uh, to keep the proportion and so on and so on, you know. So I yeah. did it one colloquium in the States where there were many women, I did something very risky, but it was accepted. I said, listen, I'm a male chauvinist. I would much prefer to have only white men. But unfortunately, I know some wonderful women and theoretically wonderful women and black guys. So against all my principles, I I had to include them. And the guys came to me and embraced me because they got the point. My point was not yeah. to make fun, but that they are really good. It's not for some politically correct stuff, you know. And so, again, for me, you know why I also have problems with identity politics? Because identity politics should be viewed against the background of Universalism. I often notice this is my old motive. How <laughs> white liberals they love to they love to support the identity of the others. Native Americans, wonderful, they have their old tribal rituals because this fixates them to their particular identity, and behind this apparent. Uh, uh, Modesty of the white. No, we don't want to assert our identity. Our identity is racist. It's really their arrogance. They act like universal agents. Yeah. What interests me much more, the Hegelian approach, is that every conflict of identities is at the same time a conflict of uh, of different visions of universalities. The problem with White identity, and that's why racists are right to fight it, is that it's not just we want our culture. It's that our culture implies, imposes a certain measure of the entire field of how other races are related to it, and so on and so on. Every particular culture implies a universal, implicit universal. View And I even don't agree always here with the others, the third world. For example, when I was young, Maoism took mm-hmm. a fateful step with which I disagree. It was to claim that today it's no longer just class struggle, but if uh, bourgeois and proletarian nations, Africa, China are proletarian nations, Western nations are bourgeois nations, where... Uh, where the working class is already fully integrated uh, into existing system. I think this is a catastrophic uh, conclusion. But so, you see, this is my problem with identity identity politics. I stick to the idea of universality. Mm. And this is not opposite to... Identity. A universal approach allows you to to assert your identity, but in a totally different way. Listen, let me give an example. I don't like too much politically uh, Salman Rushdie, a little bit too much in the liberal mainstream. But at one point, I was with him at a round table in in Basque country, uh, and uh, there some idiot asked him a pretty stupid question. Now that you are integrated into English space, didn't you betray your Indian roots? Didn't you just join the colonizers? You know, uh, like you are just uh, referring to other English writers and so on and so on who influenced you. And I must admit, Rushdie gave a wonderful answer. Which was no, it's not true. The crucial influence on me are two great Indian writers, Charles Dickens and Jane Austen. <laughs> and he said all the poverty, Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickleby, described in Dickens, that's Bombay, the poor circles. Oh, yeah. And then he said Jane Austen, this typical plot, half impoverished but not fully families that try to oh, yeah. marry their too many daughters. That's the middle class India problem and so on. You see, right? here uh, this is for me true multiculturalism. That's why I find suspicious. I know in what sense the category of cultural appropriation is suspicious. In a way... Mm-hmm. Cultural appropriation can be used in an oppressive way, but also not. Look at black black soul music and so on. This is cultural appropriation of the Bible, my God. And I totally support it and so on. So uh, what I want to say is that my idea, that's the true multiculturalism, is that the original author doesn't know everything. Original work of art is for me always open. It allows different readings which can be more truthful in some sense than the original itself. For example, yeah. Shakespeare Hamlet. I think that Shakespeare's Hamlet comes a little bit too early that only even after romanticism with its more modern existential dilemmas can we see Hamlet in all its dimensions. And my, that's why my, my favorite example here. So many movies of classical authors, movies ma- based upon them, come from uh, totally different cultures. For example, I especially like uh, Japan here. You know, Dostoevsky, idiot.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Kurosawa made it in 47-8, absolutely the best Dostoevsky movie. It is set in immediate after World War II situation of Japan. The idiot, the hero, doesn't come from uh, Europe, but from from the front and so on. Or, Or Hamlet, if you ask me, Kurosawa made in early 1960s a Hamlet set in contemporary Japan, and with a wonderful title like Bad People Can Sleep Well, something like that. <laughs> it's a wonderful title, where uh, Hamlet is a uh, Japanese uh, son of a rich family, they own a rich corporation, returns from his studies in America and discovers that his uncle killed his father to take over. It works wonderfully. So, you know, this is for me true multiculturalism. To be more faithful to the original than the original itself. Mm. That's how uh, there are, Walter Benjamin developed this how the true task of a translation is not to faithfully reproduce what's in the original, but to fill in the gaps what the original author was not able to formulate fully. In a way, good translations are better than the original, you know. And that's, for me, how you subvert identity politics. I'm not taking from you your or my original way of life, but what always uh, fascinated me is how most of our national identities are discreetly mediated by how we want foreigners to perceive us. For example, in Argentina, they told me that, you know, this typical image of Argentina, which is cliche, but it is part of their identity. La Pampas, Gaucho, you wander there. You know that uh, English travelers there, in their travelogs, created this myth. And then when in 1810, or a little later, Argentina became... a Sovereign state. They threw out Spain. Spanish uh, colonizers. They adopted this myth, you know. And it's the same with uh, it's the same with, for example, that's why I always liked Aeschylus, Aeschylus, the Greek, guy, not Orestea, but Persians. It's a view of the Greek and the battle with Greeks is shown from the Persian court, where Persians all the time are fascinated. What a great nation is this? So small, but you know, they fight so courageously, and so on and so on. You know, isn't this uh, incredible? Yeah. Be aware that your identity at its most authentic usually is always mediated by mediated by the others. This, I think, misses all this but, that's why my best friends in the United States are, if you ask me, I know just a couple of them, even more than Blacks, uh, how do you call them, Native Americans. I, I hate the name, and you know my old joke, and they hate the name, most of them. Yeah. You know they said, what is this Native American? So I'm nature and you're a cultural American's culture. <laughs> you know, this old joke of mine, one of them in Missoula, Montana, told me, I prefer to be called Indian because in this way, at least, my name is a sign of white men's stupidity. You know, they thought they were in India but they come here. <laughs> no, they so much this idea of... White liberals who come to them, oh, we are so corrupted by consumerism, you have yeah. your authentic way of life. They say, fuck you! You come to visit in our poor hearts and give me your villa in Pasadena or suburb of LA. You know. They are they are so I know what I will say now, healthy in their simple desire for a little bit of honest consumerism. You know, they, they don't enjoy this. Authentic, poor, but authentic life, and so on, and so on, you know. So, again, for me, did you read, or you should invite him? Do you know Ben Berkeley, an American non-voke leftist who wrote a wonderful book? It's half a bestseller now, something like Canceling Idiots Who Laugh When the World Is On Fire. Wow. Attack on this type of, you know. Vogue culture and so on as false struggle. Not that they are too radical, but they are too radical all this Vogue cancelling in a totally wrong direction instead of really fixing the problems and so on and so on. When you asked me before about how COVID uh, 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 it's another question. I just have two ideas. Maybe they will be amusing. Sure. How COVID affected uh, Cinema. I think yeah. that we shouldn't raise directly the question in the terms of, uh, of, do we get stories which takes place in the condition of the pandemic? Do you know any, I know only, my wife likes to watch it, I sometimes join her, that American lawyer, criminal drama, Bull, Jason Bull group of psychologists, they try to influence the jury to win their case. This rings a
1: bell, okay.
0: Now making episodes which take place, people with masks and so on, and they didn't find the formula. A more refined thing is something else. I even, now I will be a dirty sexist, I don't like her very much in a may show in this materialist sense as an object, but she's a good actress. Uh, 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 my God, uh, Kate Winslet. Okay. Last one, m- 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 all my friends are in love with her, not me, but it's a good series. Uh, Mayor of Eastwood or what? Easttown.
2: East- yeah, Some,
0: so, uh, refined analysis that, although I think you don't get COVID no. But in the whole restrained atmosphere, that there is a COVID background there. This is a much more interesting phenomenon for me than this open COVID. The question you raised, like, what will happen in post-COVID era? Maybe I'm totally wrong, but I think this anxiety of being in public spaces and so on will be overcome, left behind, if anything in, at least I'm speaking on behalf of my country. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, it's almost the opposite. Since this right-wing nationalist prime minister is pretty unpopular, at least among the cultural younger generation in the big cities, we had during COVID times, Tens of thousands of people, the biggest public protests, demonstrations against him. And they worked triumphantly because they broke all the rules, people packed and so on. And the Prime Minister predicted, this is a crime, thousands will die instead of it. It was a joke. Uh, uh, Infections fell down.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Because now it is clear, Germans did some good analysis. The mystery was also in England. You remember the last summer when you had whole crowds on your beaches for some weeks, no? And then people said this will be an explosion. No, nothing happened. It's now fully established that, by German analysis, that only 0.5 infections happen out in the open space. The big problems are people who meet privately or, of course, big factories, big offices, and so on, closed spaces. So I think uh, my my pessimism is somewhere else, if you ask me. Uh, Like, you know, COVID will not be simply over. Now we in Slovenia, but it's not so much in the media, we have... Something they called mice, like uh, like Tom and Jerry, mice, mice fever. Do you also get it? In Slovenia, no. there are already more people in the hospitals because of mice fever than oh my god in COVID. In Australia, they have a tragedy now because they had enough rain and good harvest. Billions of mice are invading farms and so on. So I think that you know don't focus just on pandemic. As the French philosopher Bruno Latour says, pandemic is just a dress rehearsal for what is awaiting us. Global warming, what is happening in the oceans and so on. Yeah. Don't think just and we are getting used to it. Did you notice, I've written about it, this strange temporality of how one year ago the basic temporal unit in reporting on The pandemic in our media was two months. There was a period of two months. Two months of lockdown then better. Then in the summer it went into half a year. Then in the fall it was half a year. Now they they say oh maybe 2024 it will be really over. But I am more of a pessimist. I think there will be other ecological catastrophes. I mean things that are already going on now, because as some good theorists of catastrophe pointed out, you know, there is one thing interesting in in, uh, a pandemic. Till now, yes, we were obsessed with potential ecological and so on catastrophes, but they were always happening in our media, in the near future, like we are five minutes to noon, or in another place of the world. Yeah. pandemic is important because now it's not this. You look uh, uh, on the news about what happens in Africa or what may happen. No, it's here and now. We were directly hit for the first time. But now I will slowly be collapsing. But one thing more I wanted to mention. <laughs> we began with Von Trier. Yes, mm-hmm. please. movie of Von Trier for me. Did you see it? The boss of it all. The comedy film. Yeah, but it's extremely intelligent as an insight into how this new postmodern, more democratic figures of the master work today. It's the guy who owns a company. You probably know the story. Yeah. Pretends that there is another guy out there in New York who really <laughs> owns it. So he's just uh, 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 he's, uh, he's just uh, uh, performing the guy's decision. He treats uh, collaborators as equal, friendly, and then everything. This is how today's masters work. The most disgusting thing is, I think it's even worse than the old-fashioned directly oppressive master. You know, just mm-hmm. authority is out there, you know how to oppose him, her, it. But these new masters, you know, I've seen some of them. You know, these are guys who, you know, you come to the job with all this daily male chauvinist vulgarity. They kick you under your head. did you have a good fuck last night? And looked, you know, these collegial obscenities, but then they still give you all the orders and so on. Just with this false obscenity, they basically prevent you to even counterattack Because they yeah. didn't tell you, but what did I do to you? I not we friends, and so on, you know. Mm. So I, here, I agreed with my personally friend, but theoretically often enemy, Judith Butler, who said that uh, the first step of feminism today, when you have a male master, is to force him to act as a master to lock this false modesty, but listen, we are just friends, we are, you know, this is yeah. male chauvinism at its worst. It's almost refreshing to have an old-fashioned master. That's why, maybe you know this old joke of mine, but I still love it. <laughs> uh, once I shocked feminists when I told them, listen, let's say you have two type of boyfriends. You have a boyfriend who is traditional male chauvinist and tells you, you didn't cook me a, a good dinner, you didn't wash my socks, you have to work more and so on. Stick with him, maybe you can retrain him. Then you can have a boyfriend who tells you, we men are too imperialist, dominating, you women have a more, uh, uh, a more organic, dialogical attitude with nature, if this is your friend, run away as soon as <laughs> <laughs> uh, you are finished there. Because in this disgusting, patronizing way, you know. Mm. Sorry, i now. Do you want a final shot at me? Because I'm now getting a little bit. Because my God, you were okay. even. On to, you will have to do a lot of, you know. Uh, you know, uh, you have to do it to make it you know what you should do? No, but it's too complicated. There were too uh-huh. much. Okay, like another of my usual jokes. Do you, did you see a documentary, quite nice one, uh, the Thin blue line?
1: Oh yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. You know what a guy says there? This should be your motto. Every, every prosecutor can get a guilty person condemned. It takes a really good prosecutor to get an innocent person condemned. So, Applying it to you. Every every interviewer can mm-hmm. use what I said. It takes a really good interviewer to use only my words, but the way you cut them to make me say the opposite of <laughs> 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 then I cannot prosecute you. You know what I'm No, 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 you said it. <laughs> and so on.
1: Oh my god. Slavoj, I'm gonna edit this to make you look like a
0: bourgeois liberal. <laughs> That's the big problem for me. That privately I am that's why I was a bad father. I spoiled so much my children, you know. I I find it so obscene to Mm. exert any serious authority. You know that?
2: I never
0: not even gently hit or slapped my any of my two sons. With one years ago, he was really annoying me. I didn't beat him. I just like shook him a little bit. Mm-hmm. The result was that not he, I started to cry and apologize. And I, 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 you know, all all my Stalinist bullshit shouldn't, uh, like you know. And you're, even, actually,
1: you're actually an anarchist. <laughs>
0: Yes and no because you know where I disagree with anarchists.
1: Uh-huh.
0: It's nice to be an anarchist in a well-functioning society. You know, yes, you know, that's true. You get water, healthcare, and so <laughs> on. That's my always my question to anarchists. Mm-hmm. How will society, larger one, be organized today with the pandemic, with global warming? We need global cooperation. Their idea is local self-organized communities, you know. And then gradually from down up, cooperation grows. This is nightmare for me. Would you really, any of you two, like to live in some city community like that? Where every (laughs) afternoon you have to meet with neighbors, how we will distribute water, how we will organize. No, I want this anonymously to be done. So that I can do what I like, watch movies, read books, write, and so on, you know. Yeah, we're we're introverts. (laughs) Yeah, and then they tell me, but in Venezuela they did it, tried to do it. I tell them, ha ha, first, as it is usual with these self organized communities, you need a very strong, charismatic leader. And point two, look how it ended. sorry i am now slowly
1: that's okay (laughs) that's okay we can we can wind we can wind it down now yeah
0: but you know what is my dream now yeah That, that a mistake happened but it not i will immediately disconnect that you think you are out disconnected but i still hear you and then you say to her or why, oh, finally we got rid of that guy. Ooh, <laughs> I would love to hear this. You know? That
1: would never happen. <laughs> uh, you've, it, uh, you've,
2: had, you've had quite a few fantasies about us <laughs> during yeah. the
1: course of this
0: podcast. I think, uh, I, I, yeah, but uh, <laughs> you know what's so magical about. Sorry, don't take me wrongly. It's not harassment, but isn't sex all about this? You fantasize? And then when you see, you man or woman, really, in a close-up, the naked body of a partner, it's usually, when it's love, still a beautiful surprise. My God, with all my imagination, I couldn't imagine. This is the most beautiful thing, to fantasize and then to discuss. Because isn't it that real love is not idealizing, Real love is, for me, you see the partner naked and it doesn't matter if you see small imperfections, you know. They even, in a way, contribute to the charm or however you call it. I don't like this word. Here people are wrong. Men who idealize their partners are dangerous. They are potentially murderers. They are like Scotty in Vertigo, you know. Oh, yeah. this is the most murderous love you can imagine. He has a real woman. He wants to recreate whom? A dead woman, of course. I think the only real love in Vertigo is not Madeleine, who is a fiction, but uh, Judy, the poor yeah. kid. second part, she really loves him. This is the only true love in the film. So in One my second. ideal alternate version, at the end, she should have thrown him from, from that. <laughs> If you ask me. Listen, I have oh, to stop now. That's and okay. Take or or whatever, you know.
1: That's okay. It's been such a pleasure, Slavoj. And I have to admit, you've kept me company on many nights, late at night. I work, I, sometimes I work late and I always have your lectures playing Listen, in the background.
0: Warning. Yeah, but a warning, since you are both nice in you know, a dirty machine sense, ladies, don't talk to me like that because then you know what i may say oh if you need more concrete concrete company (laughs) (laughs) you know where i triumphantly turned this around once in the united states two years ago this here i did a model politically correct thing even feminists were not mad at me i praised aoc yeah and then somebody said me oh you are a male chauvinist. He used this vulgar expression, no? Would you like to, probably you'd like to screw her brain out, you know? And then you know what I said? It was masterful, I think. I said, of course I would, but unfortunately, judging from how she conducts these investigations in the Congress, she is, and she is, very bright and has a big brain. Mm-hmm. So I am a little bit too old and weak to screw out such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and even feminists admitted that what began as a vulgarity, you know, they thought I am lost. I will not be able to make <laughs> a feminist point, you know. Oh Listen, my god! Even Thank started, you. What's with you? Ah, with you it's only it's only one now. With me, yeah. Actually, you know?
1: Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. I was afraid.
0: Now I go to sleep again. Okay. With, you, nice. with me, it's uh, warm, stuffy. I, I hate weather. I hate reality. To cut the long story. <laughs> uh, just then I let you go. How are you doing now uh, from the standpoint of, uh, I mean, like, are restaurants open inside already yep. in London? Yep,
1: yeah.
0: But we know has- the distances and so on.
1: Yeah, cinemas are open, um, but... Uh, Nightclubs. Still... week
0: or what? It's, no,
1: we saw, yeah, it seems to be like rising in the Delta variants. So we, yeah. we are seeing rises again. And now, yeah, the Johnson Delta
0: has... variant is 90% no, of the yeah. cases now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I just uh... hope that it will not, yeah, because I miss London, you know. I have my rituals oh. in London. I stay on a hotel in a hotel usually because Birkbeck is clear then. Somewhere near uh, Russell Square.
1: Oh, lovely. Not
0: Hotel Russell, that's too snobbish. There uh-huh. are around there some. Then I like Korean food. And there are now around there some, like one is on that Museum Street, I think just opposite some Bibimbap place or whatever. I love, I love Korean food.
1: I hope that absolutely. when you come to London, uh, we get to meet you. We can go for Korean food. Bibimbap.
0: That. Absolutely. Absolutely bibimbap. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> how do I get out? Will I know? How-
1: Just close your browser. Thank you, Slavoy. Bye. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye.